0: Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. We've been talking about the last two or three programs, about if statements in the Bible, primarily in the New Testament. You know, the if statement, when you have the word if, it usually presents a condition. For example, the first one on my list tonight is Romans 6, verse 5. It says, For if we have been planted together. In the likeness of his res, of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So the if statement says, basically, if you've been planted in something that looks like the death of Christ, then you, you'll, you'll be also in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, you'll be resurrected like Jesus Christ was resurrected, which shows you've got to be planted and planted in a way that looks like, His death in order to be resurrected, in order to be saved on the last day. Well, what is this talking about in Romans 6, 5 when it says, you need to be planted together in the likeness of his death? Well, let's read the two verses before that to set the context. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what is he talking about in this context? He's talking about baptism. He says you're buried with Christ in baptism. When somebody dies and we take them out to the graveyard, we bury them. Does that mean we sprinkle a little dirt on their head? Or does that mean we put them all the way up under the ground? Well, we put them all the way up under the ground. We know what the word buried means. This says we're buried with Christ in baptism, so that's not going to mean we sprinkle a little water on their head. It's going to mean we put them all the way up under the water. And that leads us to what verse 5 is talking about when it says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Baptism, if you bury somebody in baptism, meaning immerse them as opposed to sprinkling, baptism, if you immerse them, looks like the death of Christ, the the bearer of Christ. You're planted together in the likeness of his death. You're immersed under the water that looks like you're planted there. It looks like it has a similarity to the burial of Christ. So, so Romans 6.5 is talking about baptism and how that it, it must be an immersion because it's supposed to look like the burial of Christ. And it says, if you do this, you shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, you will be resurrected like Christ Resurrected in the last day to salvation, if you've been planted together in the likeness of his death, meaning if you've been baptized, if you've been baptized in the sense of you've been immersed and you've been, and it looks like the bearer of Christ. That's what Romans 6, 3 through 5 is basically saying that you're baptized into Christ, which would mean that if you hadn't been baptized yet, you're not in Christ. Wouldn't that mean that? If you're baptized into Christ, like Romans 6, 3 says, that would mean if you haven't been baptized, you're not in Christ. In verse 5 says, if you've been planted together in likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Meaning, you're not going to partake of the resurrection to salvation unless you've been planted in a way that looks like the burial of Christ, which he's just got through in verse 3 through 4. And it makes sense that he's talking about baptism. Of course, baptism, if it's immersion, sprinkling doesn't, but baptism, if it's immersion, does look like the burial of Christ. It is a likeness of the burial of Christ. And you're planted in that water. And it looks like the bearer of Christ, and it says if you do that, you'll be resurrected like Christ was, resurrected to salvation. Of course, this shows that you got to be baptized to be saved in the last day. There's no doubt about it. If you have a Bible question or comment, the number to call if you'd like to get on the air, the lines are wide open, is 877-655-6755. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. And then how about in Romans 6, verse 8, we have another if statement. It says, now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Well, what's the conditional statement? If you're dead with Christ, you'll live with him, meaning you'll be saved. But only if you're dead with Christ. What's that talking about? Well, I believe it's talking about, if you examine the whole context, it's talking about dying to sin, being separated from sin, repentance, repentance. Remember, Peter told believers in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So when you're baptized, you get the forgiveness of all your sins at that point, but only if you repent first. He didn't just say be baptized for the remission of sins. He said repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Repentance means you're changing your mind about sin. You're committing to quit serving sin and start serving Christ. And then, of course, God expects you after you're baptized to follow through on that commitment. That repentance here in Romans 6 is called being dead with Christ. You're dead to your sins, separated from your sins. In other words, you have decided to live a different way. It says, if you do that, then you'll live with Christ. If you do that, then you'll live with Christ. And then Romans 8, verse 9, another if statement says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, that's emphatic. A lot of, even preachers will say, a Christian doesn't have the Spirit. (laughs) Well, this verse says that you're you're only in the Spirit, meaning you're not in the flesh, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of his. So if you don't have the Spirit dwelling in you, the Holy Spirit, then you're none of None of his. You don't belong to Christ. Then a similar statement in Romans 8, verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ be in you. Now, how does all that work? Well, I think Ephesians 2.22 helps us to see. It says, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the spirit. So does Christ dwell in us? Yes, but representatively through the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in us personally, literally. But Ephesians 2.22 is saying that God dwells in us through the Spirit. So that God, the Father, God, the Son dwell in us, but it's only representatively through the Spirit. Like we might say President Bush negotiated with, we'll say Iraq, through Condoleezza Rice. Well, It's true that President Bush negotiated, but he didn't do it directly. He did it representatively. He sent Condoleezza Rice to do the negotiation. It's the same way with God the Father and the Son. They dwell in us, the faithful Christian, but only representatively. They dwell in us through the Spirit, according to Ephesians 2.22. In other words, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is there personally, literally. God the Father and God the Son are only there representatively through the Spirit. The Spirit represents them there. You can tell that from Ephesians 2.22. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877 655 And then another if statement, Romans 8 verse 13. It says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Hey, that's getting back at that repentance idea again. If you live after the flesh, if you don't repent of your sins and you keep on living, serving the flesh, succumbing to the desires of the flesh, the temptations of the flesh, you're going to die spiritually. But if you, through the Spirit, mortify, mortify means put to death, mortify the deeds of the body, meaning if you repent, If you change your life and start living a life uh, serving Christ in righteousness and quit serving sin, you'll live spiritually. To live spiritually, then, you have to repent. You have to mortify, put to death the deeds of the body. That's the force of that if statement there in Romans 8. And then Romans 8, verse 17, another if statement. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. It says, if we suffer with him, what's that talking about? If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together with him. Well, I think 2 Timothy three twelve 12 helps, helps explain it. It says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. So if you're a faithful Christian, you're going to suffer persecution. If you're not suffering persecution, you must not be standing up for Christ at times that it's needed, speaking up for Christ. Because if you do, you'll be persecuted, by, especially by non-Christians, but even by Christians sometimes, if you stand up for the truth. If you suffer with him, you'll be glorified together with him. That's a big if statement. You have to suffer with him. It says, if you, all that live godly in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution. All faithful Christians will suffer some sort of persecution, not necessarily all physical persecution, but some form of persecution. Again, if you have a Bible question or comment, the number to call is 877-655-6755. How about Romans 10 verse 9? Another if statement. It says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, there's an if statement. There are two conditions. If you want to be saved, you have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead. There's two conditions there. Some people say, well, all you got to do is believe in Jesus to be saved. No, that's not all you have to do. You have to believe in Jesus, but this verse says you got to confess him with your mouth and you got to believe that he was raised from the dead. You say, Pat, doesn't everybody believe in Jesus believe he was raised from the dead? No, not necessarily. Matter of fact, we have presidents of theological seminaries. <laughs> They're supposed to be teaching the Bible, supposed to be advocating the cause of Christ. They believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but they don't believe he was resurrected from the dead. They don't believe in any miracles. But this says you've got to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and confess him with your mouth in order to be saved. It's a condition. That's what we mean by that word if in these cases. It's an if condition. If you confess with him with your mouth, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart, your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That means that if you don't confess him with your mouth, you won't be saved. If you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, you won't be saved. That's the force. Of the if condition. And then Romans 12 verse 18 says, If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. If it's possible, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes this conflict is unavoidable, but it should never be our fault. If it's possible, live peaceably with all men. I wonder, as Christians, are we trying to live peaceably with all men to the best of our ability, putting our full effort into that, so that there won't be conflicts in the world around us, that in our workplace or with our families or at church? We don't. We want to avoid those conflicts. Yes, we can't compromise the truth. We have to stand for the truth. But if if it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. We need to try to live peaceably with all men. Bend over backwards to do it. Give up some of your rights in order to live peaceably with all men. After all, those rights that you had on this earth that you're having to give up, they won't mean anything when you get to heaven because you'll have it so much better there anyway. All those rights that you had to give up, you'll forget about those things. It's worth it. Do whatever it takes other than compromising the word of God to live peaceably with all men. And then Romans 12 verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. And if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. You know, this is how we're supposed to treat our enemies, according to the New Testament. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 5. If, you're hung, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. You do good to him, even though he may treat you badly. You do good back to him. It says, in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, You will make him feel guilty or you're more likely to make him feel guilty for treating you badly if when he treats you badly, you treat him in a good way back. If somebody takes a verbal shot at you and you just shoot back another verbal shot, he's going to feel justified in what he did the first time. But if he treats you in an ugly way and you treat him back in a very kind way, then... That might make him feel bad for what he did to start with. He'll feel guilty. He'll feel bad. That would be heaping coals of fire on his head. We have to treat others right, kind and gentle, no matter how they treat us. We can't say, but if he's treating me in a mean way, then I can treat him in a mean way back. Now, the golden rule doesn't say do unto others as they have done unto you, but do unto others as they have, as you would have them do unto you. Matthew seven twelve. So even if your enemy is mean and ugly to you, wanting to hurt you, then you feed him if he's hungry, give him drink if he's thirsty. You return his bad with good. And that's the way of a Christian. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755 you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call. Romans 13, 4 says, and it's talking about the rulers here, the government. It says, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if, there's our word if, thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. What is the po- What is one of the purposes of the government? According to this is to punish evildoers. If you do that which is evil, you should be afraid of them because he does not bear the government. He does not bear the sword in vain. He's a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. That's the point of the government or one of the points of the government is to punish the evildoers. Now, he's the minister of God to thee for good, but if you do that which is evil, then you deserve the punishment you get from the government. If you commit a crime, you deserve to go to jail is a simple way we could put it practically. You deserve the punishment. That's the purpose of government, or one of the purposes of government is to punish the evildoers, to punish the criminals. And then Romans 14, 23 says, And he that doubteth is condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is of faith, whatsoever is not of faith, is sin. Now, in this context, it's talking about eating meats, I think it's talking about eating things like pork, for example. So you had Jews that became Christians. And during their lifetimes, for decades in some cases, it would have been wrong for a Jew, because the Old Testament law was still binding, it would have been wrong for a Jew to eat pork. Now Christianity starts, and the Bible teaches in places like Acts 10 and First Timothy 4 that it's okay to eat pork now. No problem with it. But some of these Jews had gone for decades thinking it was a sin. So they think it's a sin and then they eat pork anyway. If you doubt, if you think it's wrong, even though it's not wrong, if you think it's wrong and you do it anyway, this is saying it's a sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Why is that? Because even though this thing really wasn't wrong in and of itself, you made a choice. You thought it was wrong and you made a choice to do something God, You thought God was saying not to do. That's an act of rebellion to God. If you do something you think God said not to do, even though he didn't, you're rebelling against God. If you meet pork when you think it's wrong, it says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So what this shows is that we need to be careful about what we do. We don't want to do what the Bible says not to do. and We don't want to violate our conscience, and we don't want to cause somebody else to violate their conscience meaning do something they think is wrong. And then First Corinthians 5.11, we have another if statement. It says, but now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. Now the Bible calls this practice here of what he's enjoining these Corinthians to do. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6 it calls it withdrawing withdrawing from the disorderly he says you're not to keep company with them there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 14 here it says you're not to keep company with them if they're called a brother he's not talking about somebody that's not a Christian basically you have to go out of the world it says in this context if you did that you had to withdraw from everybody even the non-Christians who are in sin now, he's not talking about the non Christian. He's talking about a brother, but that brother becomes a fornicator, or covetous, or a idolater, or railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Don't keep company with him. Don't even eat with him. You try to get him to repent, and you work with him. Try to get him to repent. Eventually, though, if he won't repent, you're going to have to withdraw from him. That's what this is talking about. You're going to quit keeping social company with him. You're going to quit eating with him. You're going to let him know that he's not acting like a faithful Christian. And if he wants to uh, be your best buddy again, he's going to have to straighten up. That's the force of this if statement, 1 Corinthians 5. And then another if statement, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, it says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But an if, there's our word, she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled. To her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So we have a command here, a command from the Lord: let not the uh, let not the wife depart from her husband. That's the command. So if a wife departs from her husband, she's violated this command. That could occur through marital separation, divorce, divorce and remarriage. In either of those three cases, she's departed from her husband, so she's violated this command. The newer translations will say, "Let not the wife separate from her husband." So the wife. Remember what we said when we got married, for better, or for worse, in sickness, sin, in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. God expects us to follow through on that commitment, till death do us part. So we can't say, oh, well, this marriage is not working out. I don't love my husband anymore. I can leave. No, it says, let not the wife depart from her husband. That's the command. Then verse 11 gives us the if statement. But an if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. So if a wife departs from her husband, she's in sin, according to verse 10. She's violating the command of the Lord. How would she repent of that? Well, she would offer to go back to her husband, seek reconciliation with her husband. What if he won't take her back? Then it says she's to remain unmarried. She's not to go out and get married again, that second marriage, and commit the additional sin of adultery. Remember Matthew 19, 9, Jesus said, whoever puts away their wife, except it be for fornication and marries another, commits adultery. So it's wrong for her to depart from her husband, to leave her husband. But then if she goes out and remarries, she's going to commit the additional sin of adultery. So both are wrong. The divorce is wrong. First Corinthians 10 shows that's wrong. Matthew nineteen nine shows the subsequent remarriage is wrong. That's adultery. And if a person finds themselves in that second marriage, that's in violation of Matthew nineteen nine. In other words, they didn't get a divorce for fornication. Then they remarry and they're in that second marriage. Of course, repentance to get forgiveness would demand that they leave, terminate that second marriage, and seek reconciliation with their original husband, as just like verse 11 says here, First Corinthians 7. You can't just say, I'm sorry for committing adultery and, con- and then plan on continuing to commit adultery. No more than two men in a gay marriage can say, I'm sorry, and act like they've repented when they're not planning on getting out of that gay sexual relationship you find yourself divorced and remarried and you didn't get a divorce for fornication, then your second marriage is adultery and you need to get out of that marriage if you want to be pleasing to God and go to heaven. Again, if you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. And then another if statement, 1 Corinthians 739 says, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Well, there's why. We read Matthew nineteen nine that states the facts of the case. If I divorce my wife, Carol, when she hadn't cheated on me and remarry, I commit adultery. Why? Because it says I'm bound to Carol, obligated to Carol as long as she lives. So even though the state of Alabama may say it's okay for you to divorce Carol, free incompatibility and remarry, God says, no, that's not okay you're still obligated to Carol, even though that state of Alabama says that you're married to somebody else. You're still obligated, bound to Carol. So if you marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. You're committing adultery. But if her husband be dead, talking about now, talking about a widow, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. So the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. She's obligated to him. But if he dies, She's free to remarry. That's the force of this if statement. That's the force of this if statement. And then 1 Corinthians 8.13, which is like the passage we read in Romans 14. 1 Corinthians 8.13 says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to a fin, I will no, eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest to make my brother to a fin. So if you have a Jew, if you or excuse me, if you have somebody that's eating meat offered to idols, and uh, we know that there's really nothing wrong with that if you understand you're not worshiping the idol. But then, you think, oh, if I do that, I'm worshiping the idol, but I'm going to eat the meat anyway. And then they, they think that's wrong. And then you eat the meat in front of them. You know that it's okay, but you eat the meat in front of them. And you cause them through your actions to eat the meat and violate their conscience. That's bad. That's a sin. If meat if might make, make my brother to offend, I'll eat no flesh while the world's standing. If, if. Don't do things that will cause other people's people to stumble. If you would like a free... One hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience. Call or text me at 256-682-9753.